0: I just had to tune into the soul that I was born to be. It's really simple. It really is. When we let go of all those expectations and we just show up as our core self and let go of the worry of whether other people are going to approve of us or not, the funny thing is when we do that too, people love us even more. And we really start to attract the people, the places and things that will help us get to that next level of making a difference in the world. It starts to actually feel easy. It doesn't have to be a push.
1: Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selik and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey. The grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome Seven Hatters. In this episode we speak with Sarah Delaney and dive deep into Hats 1, 4, 6, and 7, the Saul, the Entrepreneur, the Philanthropist, and the Seeker, as we take the hero's journey through the trials and tribulations of abuse, addiction, trauma, and the triumphant return to the ordinary world bearing the elixir of the three mountains. Sarah is a global activist and a social entrepreneur with a genuine passion for changing the world for the better. She is a fellow CPG founder of an award-winning beverage brand, a TEDx speaker, and has been partnering with the people of Rwanda sourcing premium-grade Camellia Sinensis tea from farmer-owned cooperatives. Sarah is a true survivor with an incredible story and spirit you don't want to miss. It is not by accident that Brian Biro said, In a world so often torn by the devastation and despair of separation, Sarah Delaney ignites hope and the power of transformation through the two most powerful lights of change, love and community. So if you're ready to put on your philanthropist hat and go where few have the guts to go, then let's welcome Sarah to The Seven Hats. Sarah, welcome to The Seven Hats.
0: Hello, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. You know, Sarah, I'm so excited to speak with you today for two reasons. Number one, you're a fellow CPG entrepreneur. So there's a lot to talk about there. And number two, you actually fully embody the hat that I'm most in need of upping my game at. And that is hat number six, the philanthropist hat. Your journey is incredible. I have to say, and very inspirational: uh, a true triumph and a vision of what is possible for us individuals. You know, I believe that, despite the issues that we face here in the U.S, and we have many issues for sure, we still live in the best country in the world. You know many of us are sheltered, I think, from the deep horrors behind our borders. Uh, but you had a front row seat that I'm sure provided a perspective that many never experienced here in the States. But before we get to that period in your life, I know that the Seven Hatters want to learn who Sarah is and what in your childhood led you to become such a, um, a beacon of light for so many. So Sarah, where were you born and how was your childhood like?
0: Mm-hmm yeah, right now I'm actually sitting in Asheville, North carolina. i'm I'm up kind of perched up um, in my home office looking out the most incredible window at the Blue Mountains wow. here. And it is just the most be- I just started working up here, and it's just the most beautiful view like behind you. So it actually reminds me of home um, because I was born in the Green Mountains of Vermont. So I've always been drawn to the mountains. It just feels safe to me. They feel nurturing. I even lived in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, which is much different. Like the mountains there are, I would say, less nurturing, <laughs> but like full of adventure and excitement and ruggedness. And um, but I grew up in a small town in central Vermont, and uh, maybe twelve hundred people in my town. Mm. It's probably gotten smaller wow. since I left. Maybe maybe $1,199. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was quite small um, school. We went through eighth grade, and then we got um, transported to nearby high schools. We did go to high school. Okay, good. So there was, <laughs> to be there clear, was a school to there. Be clear. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, my eighth grade graduating class, I think, was 16 people. So everyone knew everyone. My mom remarried. Um, My parents got divorced when I was one. My mom remarried when I was maybe three-ish. And I have a sister um, from her and my stepfather. She was born when I was five. So it was just the two of us growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, Tons of cousins. My grandfather had a horse farm. So we grew up with like horses. And um, I was a competitive rider. Did ballet. Was competitive in that. um, Piano. I had a lot of great activities. Grew up skiing. I started wow, skiing when I was probably three, Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and skiing is still my my all-time favorite sport. Yeah. It's just, it's the thing that I do and feel totally free, yep. just completely blissed out. It's And my son is 11 now, kind of skipping ahead, but he just got into it. So it's just been really fun to get back to that. But that's a snippet of my childhood.
1: That, that is awesome. So tell me a little bit about um, your parents. So your mom remarried, because that's the only dad you knew at, at that point. Uh, you were too young with your first. Um, how was that experience like? What did they expect of you? Was that an easy childhood, very loved, or was there some trauma um, and, um, and some issues there growing up?
0: Um, so my Biological dad, just to be clear, I did know him, okay. um, but I never lived with him. He was nearby, so I don't recall like my younger years all that well. Um, I do remember even after my parents got divorced, my, my biological dad would come over so she could cut his hair. Um, they did not speak. I don't think they got along. He didn't get along with my stepfather, but she was the only one he would let like, cut his hair. <laughs> so that's a little strange memory um but yeah i would see him maybe every couple weeks for a couple hours i don't you know i have like i have some good memories i have some some gaps in my childhood where i don't remember anything really for a period of time i know you know there's a long line of alcoholism and addiction in my family from which side your mom Um,
1: your stepdad
0: Probably, probably all of the above.
1: So you grew up watching them drink heavily?
0: No, no. So my mom was a child of an alcoholic. Um, I never really saw her drink heavily, but she grew up as, you know, she was a child of alcoholics, so that has its own set of behaviors. Um, and then my stepdad, um, there were some addictions on that side. I wouldn't say there was a lot of active alcoholism around me, but I know my grandfather on my mom's side died of alcoholism. Um, I was just very aware of it. And it's really cool. So I have lots of cousins up there. And every year, my mom's sister hosts a big Thanksgiving at, the, at this farm where she lives and where we kind of grew up. And I noticed the last time I was there, it was probably four years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Looking around this giant Thanksgiving table, I noticed like there wasn't a drop of alcohol in the whole house. And everyone at the table was either either just didn't drink or like was in recovery or didn't drink because they were the child of an alcoholic or something like we were all affected by it. Um, But it's very cool that we can like get together and not have it around. So I'm really grateful for that that I live an alcohol free lifestyle now and that I have a lot of family members that do it. Yeah, that's
1: well. that's we'll touch upon, you know, that in a second. But I remember we have a some some things in common. I ninth grade my parents moved from New York, huge city, and I was this city kid to mm-hmm. Hunter Tennersville, which is upstate New York and the town was probably about a thousand people and 20 people or 15 people in my class. And here I am, you know, ninth grade coming in with my Walkman and my, you know, my, my street clothes and they all look at me and they're like, who the fuck are you? And I'm not, uh-huh. and, and, and you're different. And, and now you're going to pay the price for the rest mm-hmm. of the year. The thing that I relate to, and I, and do you, cause I think a lot of these small towns, they do have a drug and alcohol problem with the kids in mm. high school. And I've seen that I started getting into it a little bit. Luckily, you know, it wasn't in my cards, but I never got, I never, I don't have an addictive personality, but I did see a lot of my, the the people in my class, the kids in my class really get into heavy drugs and heavy alcoholism. Did you, it was during your high school years in such a small uh, town, did you face any of that temptation? Did you partake?
0: Mm. I think my first experience with kind of rebelling and like sneaking around with substances was my cousin and I were real close. She and I were like besties. She, we were practically ex- the same age, like born two weeks apart. Like her mom, you know, took care of me in the crib with her. And um, by the time we got old enough, it's probably like seventh grade, we would fence judge at the horse competitions because we would host different competitions throughout the summer. Uh And she and I would run around um, working at the show and like watching the the fences. And we had a cross country course. So we'd be like in the woods at times. And I just remember stealing um, Virginia slams were like the cigarettes at the time. And sneaking them out of like, you know, someone would just leave a pack on a bench or something and we'd take a couple and that was the first time I smoked. It felt like I, w- I knew I was being so, I would i would say bad, right? Because yeah. I grew up in that like you have, you're bad or you're good kind of dichotomy.
1: Was it a religious household?
0: No, no. It was just very much, I was very much pressured and felt the need to always behave well to always behave, to to kind of be quiet, follow the rules, look a certain way, act a certain way. It felt to me that um, we did have like some really great family experiences. I mean, I have so much gratitude towards my mom. She did the best she could with what she had. Um, And it did also feel like there were some secrets in my household and things that we had to protect or not talk about. I didn't even know what those things were. Um, but I, but we, we were required to present in a certain way. Um, and so, in so, you know, I had the great grades, all the activities. And then when that moment came to kind of like rebel or sneak around, it felt so exciting. Like it just felt, it triggered something in me. It wasn't about the smoking. It was just about like, this is something I know I'm not supposed to be doing. And my mom would be upset. I felt good. Yeah. I'm so going to do it anyway. That Fuck was it. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that was part of it. I also had a lot of fear, I think, of like actually getting in trouble with things. So I probably, um, you know, didn't do certain things that I was tempted to do at an early age. But I do remember like the first drinking party was eighth grade graduation. Yeah. And it was... I don't know. I think it was probably the first time a lot of my friends drank and it was just like a sleepover thing. And the the boys somehow like got some stuff from their parents and everyone brought a little of something and just mixed it all together in a punch bowl. And we all were probably sick the next day. Um, wow. <laughs> it was, you know, I'm sure we were even being sick the next day. There was something like that also, that excitement that, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. And then it also created this like social lubricant, um, because by that time, by eighth grade, I definitely had like become quiet and shy and didn't, I think I was losing a sense of myself and my voice. And so that's, it temporarily felt like it was bringing that back. It almost made me feel like I could be myself.
1: Why do you think you lost that voice?
0: I really don't know. You know, I really, I don't believe it was anyone's fault. Um, I think part of it was societal. Part of it was the culture of the world, of my school, of my teachers. You know, I had some incredible teachers as well. um, But I also felt quieted in a lot of ways. Um, There were expectations of me to look and be a certain way. Um, that didn't align with kind of more of a like adventurous creative side of me that I think I really wanted to explore. And, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly. I don't know if something happened. Um, I think part of it was moving to a new school in fifth grade. And, um, there was a lot of attention. That was the small school I moved to. Like you talked about, there was like a lot of attention on me. And I think even to this day, I have mixed feelings about that. You know, I, I want the attention, but I don't want it. Yeah. Um, if I'm not getting it, it's like, well, what's wrong? You know, I, need, I, should, I should be getting it. But um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I,
1: it, it totally does. I mean, I kind of relate as well because I, I had an interesting childhood. I moved a lot. My dad is a violin maker and he moved from Israel to uh, New York when I was nine. And then literally every two years, we moved someplace else. So I never had you know, a a set of friends that I can rely on. And I had to really just start anew every, every couple of years. And I think that when you're looking way back in childhood and there are certain time periods where you just don't remember any part of it, who knows? I mean, you know, I've always wanted to do some hypnotherapy to figure out and be like, Holy shit! What the hell happened? But you know, yeah, maybe I'm even too scared of even going there. But I know, yeah, it's like I don't <laughs> want to go there. But but it does, <laughs> but it does affect you. And I think that's that's shutting down mm-hmm. and the experimenting and doing all that stuff. I think is, but it also builds character. And I think that's where we can go from there. You you know, you didn't have this you know silver platter childhood where everything was rosy and unicorns, right? So what happened then? High school. So what did you want to do for for your life? Right? Was it it wasn't philanthropy, right? And CPG entrepreneur, right? It wasn't something we are thinking (laughs) in eight years. What did you want to do? What was your dream?
0: I think this goes back to the attention thing. I knew that I, I, I felt this need to do something big. I felt this need to do something that would potentially make me a celebrity somehow famous. I had this idea of being famous But (laughs) you're nodding. Well, you and
1: I, like, (laughs) literally, that was my my thing. I
0: knew I was going to do something But I was shy. Like, I wasn't an actress. (laughs) I tried that. I wasn't a singer. (laughs) I mean, I can't. You don't want to hear. So it was, you know, I was a dancer. I was, um, I did some modeling in junior high. I thought about even being a firefighter. It was like a fleeting thought. Just different you know, there's also like a heroism associated with that, right? And I was entrepreneurial. I mean, I re I remember just kind of brainstorming things I could do not so much to make money, but just to create Mm -hmm. and kind of inspire and to help. I really liked coming up with ideas. And I also liked building community. Like when I was, um, maybe third grade second grade i'm guessing like we lived on this very remote dirt road i wanted to do the whole lemonade stand or you know something people could buy on the side of the road but we were so far from like a main road so i set up shop at the bottom of our driveway probably my mom was like right around the corner watching and i just i collected gemstones and i had a table with gemstones and i would Try to sell those, but it was just so you know, so few people actually drove by. <laughs> so I do things like that. I had um, I started a birthday planning company, I guess you would say, um, in junior high to help um, parents create fun, nice. actually fun birthday parties that their kids would really like. So I did that for a little bit in the typical like babysitting and and my. My mom had a really good friend who um, her friend and her friend's husband bought this sugar uh, maple sugaring farm operation in Vermont. Uh And they started a business making and bottling maple syrup. It was like organic, incredible quality. And they started taking it to the Specialty Food Association show in New York City. So I would hear about that. My mom started working for them. And then in the summers, I started working there and it was an assembly line. So it was just, you know, now that I think back, I guess that's my, you know, that was my first yeah. experience in CPG. But I never really thought about it like that. It was actually like living hell. I mean, I just stood on that assembly line, like tagging the bottles as they came down. It was misery to me. I mean, that kind of work. <laughs> It <laughs> was just not at all what I wanted to do. You know, uh, right. I did it because my mom made me, or maybe I made some money. But so I knew that wasn't the kind of work that I was going to end up doing that would be fulfilling. I guess full circle, I'm kind of back to that, aren't I? Well,
1: we all are in one way or another. <laughs> so, so now you go off to college. Uh, where's college?
0: Um, I went to Simmons College in Boston, uh-huh. it's an all women's school right next to Fenway Park.
1: Okay. And what was your major? What did you study?
0: I majored, my first major was psychology, and then I changed to management. I ended up graduating with a management degree, and I minored in French. And I studied abroad in college as well. In France, um, correct? In France. Yeah, I actually went to France twice.
1: Okay. So, um, difficult subject, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, because I know a lot of people go through this. It's, I watch your TED Talk. Uh, You were very vulnerable on the TED Talk. At one point, you spoke about uh, your time in France and uh, going out one night with uh, some friends of yours, and then coming back. What happened that night?
0: Yeah, so I was a junior. It was the second half of my junior year, and I was in Grenoble in the Alps, beautiful, beautiful town, studying international business, Um, and I lived in a hotel. It was like a long term. Um, housing unit inside of a hotel. Um, and I had two roommates, both American women. And then some of our other students lived in the hotel. Um, so generally, there were people around. But one night, we went to a, someone's house and they had a small house party. Um, and there was some drinking, there was dinner. Um, and I decided to leave. I was just really tired. I think it was around 11. It wasn't even that late, and I decided to leave, and I walked back to the hotel by myself, um, and I was walking. It was like this cobblestone street. It was quite dark and quiet. It's a quiet town, and I could tell someone was following me. Like I could just sense it or hear their footsteps, um, and I had been drinking, but I wasn't I don't think I was drunk. Like, I wasn't blacked out. I remember all the details. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time I got inside the building, he started chasing me inside the building, up the stairs, and I, I couldn't shut the door to my hotel room in time. And so he busted into the room and ended up raping me that night.
1: And did you know that person or no?
0: I, until, I don't think so, but I never saw their face. So we had blackout shades in the room um, and covered my face and held a knife to my throat. And, um, I never actually saw his face. I know that he spoke French. Um, still to this day, when I hear French, it's difficult. I was fluent at the time and I haven't been back since it was a beautiful place. I, I also lived in en Provence. Um, and I'd like to go back. I know that I will, Um, We reported it and everything. Um, He got away. No, still have never heard anything since then. I stayed for another week or so um, just to wait and see if anything would happen with the police reports. Um, And they couldn't uh, find him.
1: So this is, this is starting to you know, get into traumatic experiences and, mm-hmm. and, almost, and almost getting you ready for your next chapter um, in life and, mm. and being able to understand and be empathetic towards others who have experienced that kind of trauma because that's just not normal, right? It, no one ever expects mm-hmm. to ever feel that way. How did you mm. act post the trauma? Do you look back at it and say, well, I've exhibited the same sort of behaviors that most abu- abused women go through. Did I, did I act differently? And if you look back, what would you have done differently if you could have? Because I'm sure there are those listening right now that are going through this exact moment, right? They, they've been traumatically, potentially raped or abused in some way. Mm-hmm. So what are the normal behaviors that you experience? Is that what normally happens? Because I'm sure you've studied that. And then what would you have done different if you could have done something different?
0: Right. Hmm. Well, first of all, I appreciate you asking me like all these questions because it was interesting experience just now telling you what happens. Like I was really feeling into my body and noticing I was getting nervous, you know, but I, 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 I walked through it and I, I didn't feel like I was thrown into a traumatic loop just now. But I think that's, you know, telling of the work that I've done and I've been able to talk more about it. And I actually have, you know, worked with I worked with a therapist who who helped me really process a lot of this. But it's still I think for someone who has um, a trauma like this or post-traumatic stress disorder, we we know that trauma knows no time. So no matter how much time has gone by, if it's it, it's still there, the memory is still there at varying levels. Um, and I, I would say, whatever I experience, however I responded and however someone else is responding is normal. There's no, right? It's everyone has their own normal. Mm-hmm. The way that I responded at the time felt very, un, very abnormal. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I I had kind of a voice like, saying, what is wrong with you? That's when I know, um, I need to pay attention now is if I hear that, like what's wrong with you, or I'm beating myself up or somehow blaming myself, you know, because I think for a time I thought, well, if I hadn't been drinking that night, or if I hadn't walked home alone that night, like maybe I could have avoided it. But I went into a state of freeze, which is a little bit, maybe less common, but Uh, For a couple of days, I barely spoke. Actually, I just didn't really feel anything. I went numb um, and I became almost like a robot. I would just answer questions, do what I had to do. And then I started drinking again.
1: So you weren't drinking ahead of time. Now you just started again or were you drinking? You just increased the the intensity.
0: Yeah. I mean, for a couple of days, I just remember like way I was staying with a friend in the room above where my room was in the hotel, just waiting for some kind of report to come back. And I just, I was like in a comatose almost, like barely eating and not drinking, not drinking alcohol, you know, just drinking the bare minimum water kind of thing. Um, And then after a couple of days passed, I just remember getting out there and like going to a cafe with friends And sitting down at this French cafe and they ordered, someone ordered wine. It was like the middle of the day and we all just sat and drank like, like as if it was this normal sunshiny French day. It was so weird thinking back. And then maybe another week passed and then I finally flew back to the States. And then that summer back in Vermont at my, my family house before I went back to school, just kind of trying to get back to normal life, not really talking about it much. I don't remember going to therapy that summer. I just – it was like something people didn't want to talk about or were waiting for me to talk about. And then the following year, I just put my head down and just did better than ever in school. I mean, I just – I I didn't like consciously think, okay, I'm just going to kick butt this year and like graduate magna cum laude and like kill it in life, blah, blah, blah. I just did. I just did. And I think looking back, it was like probably a, a defense mechanism, you know, to try to somehow prove that this thing was not, this experience was not going to drag me down and tear me apart. But I also wasn't in touch with my feelings. I wasn't maybe ready to process it all. Yeah. And I think if someone else is experiencing it like that, that's normal. If they're having a different reaction, that's okay as well. But at some point, um, it's so important to get support and to be able to process it because it'll start coming out sideways in really weird ways. I mean, it took me a while to even understand how it affected my life Um, but it takes the time it takes is the time it takes. It's different for everyone. There's no normal timeline of how to recover from something like that. I do believe that as parents, it's our responsibility to do the trauma healing that we need to do before we bring more life into Mm, this world. That's
1: really interesting, by the way. I love that. So when you had Jackson do you feel like that you were ready to have Jackson, or did you, because what you just said was really poignant, or did, are you saying it because you made the mistake of not dealing with, with it prior to giving birth to Jackson? No,
0: I dealt doubt, I doubt with it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not to say that it's gone, right? But I got sober, I got help, the resources I need, counseling, did some trauma healing work, and, and also, you know, all of those things I did intentionally before moving overseas, because I do think, like, we also need to be responsible for our energies. We need to be responsible for what we, you know, if we're going to move to another country, we're also ambassadors, really. yeah. And so I think we have to be healthy and grounded and respectful and ready to learn and ready to listen and be global servants.
1: Yeah. So let me. I I definitely. I know you're in recovery, and I want to. I want to get to that in a second and kind of understand what you've learned from that experience. But taking you back, so you came back from France. You finished your degree with honors, by the way, uh, because you said Mm -hmm. you've done better than ever, you know, ever before prior. (laughs) On
0: paper, (laughs) on paper at least.
1: So and you landed this incredible job right with an investment bank. Everybody that goes through a finance degree or a business degree wants to be an investment banker for some reason. But no matter what the outside looked like to others, right? you didn't talk about the pain that you were dealing with, right? consciously and probably subconsciously. So there's a great song written by Smokey Robinson. I'm not going to sing it like you. I have no voice. Oh, called, let's go. <laughs> called Tracks of My Tears that goes uh-huh. like this, right? People say that I'm the life of the party because I tell a joke or two. Although I might be laughing loud and hearty, Deep inside, I'm blue. So take a good look at my face. You'll see my smile looks out of place. If you look closer, it's easy to trace the tracks of my tears. Was that you at that time? Tell us about that period of yeah. your of your life.
0: Hmm. I like that you brought that in <laughs> to listen to the song. Um, yeah, I... You know, today when I, it's not easy for me to even call on those tears, I would say. When I see people crying or, you know, out of emotion, whether it's happy or sad, sometimes I'm almost jealous that they have access to that. Wow. Um, It's, yeah, because for me to really tap into my feelings is a challenge. Um, I'm getting better at it. But it's not easy. And I think, you know, there is that locked up pain inside that sometimes shows up in a different way. It might show up as anxiety or worry or some kind of fear maybe, but actually tapping into like a sadness or like grief or I mean, I know there's just so many different emotions that um, there's like a feeling wheel, which I keep meaning to buy and have in my house. (laughs) I saw on the wall of a, I think it was a child therapist and it was a feeling wheel. And I'm like, oh, I need to get one of those. There were so many feelings I never really thought about. (laughs) And I, that's, that's what got me when I watched that documentary about the women that I talked about in my Ted talk, the women in Rwanda that night when I was living in Salem, Massachusetts, and I just started sobbing.
1: Now you were still an alcoholic then and then after watching it, you went to recovery or were you already in recovery? Yeah, I was still
0: drinking. No, I was still drinking. I was only probably 22, 22 at the time. Okay. So let's,
1: so let's give a brief history then, because I think we're getting into the shift in your life, right? So, Let's give the Seven Hatters a brief history of what happened in Rwanda in 1994. So there was a Mm. political assassination which triggered actually one of the biggest mass killings in history. It was called the Rwandan Genocide and it was on April, if I believe, 7th, 1994, 1994, yes. A government-backed campaign of mass killings began with the aim of the ethnic cleansing of an empowered minority group called Hutu. And Hutu massacred hundreds of thousands of ethnic uh, Tutsis and any Hutu sympathizer. So it wasn't just that you had to be a Tutsi. If you sympathized with, with Tutsis, you were done. So within a span of 100 days, okay? I, I, I want everybody to listen to this because this is really important here, okay? Within a span of 100 days, 800,000 people were killed. Okay, that's six people every minute. And when researching this tragedy, what disturbed me was that the world actually knew about it, and they practically did nothing to stop the killings, okay? Now, you learned about this by watching a documentary. How did that documentary affect you personally, and then what did you discover about yourself in the process, which probably led to recovery? So give us that emotional depth that you felt when you watched that documentary and what happened as a result.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a couple of things that happened. Uh, one, it was the pain. It was, I, I, in hearing their stories, I, it, it broke something open inside of me. It cracked open that shell that I was holding all my own pain in. So I, I felt very deeply. It was such a relief. As, as heart-wrenching as their story was to hear, it was a relief to, to feel something So it was that. And then it was this feeling that I not that I experienced what they experienced, but it was the idea that unthinkable things happen to people around the world, that we have almost this common trauma. And it gave me hope too that I, you know, later found out so many people did survive and did lose so much and face death and went on to live and be joyful and do incredible things. Cause I was at that point with myself where I didn't know, like, I didn't know what my future would look like. I knew that I needed a change. Um, I hadn't really talked about what happened in France, even though many people knew,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, my, my, the other students that were with me in Grenoble knew mm-hmm. my family knew mm-hmm. some of my friends at college in Boston knew no one talked about it. Yeah. I never, so it was just there. So I I didn't know anyone else who had experienced something like that. I knew rape happened around the world. I had experienced rape before, but not like that. So it it inspired me. It broke my heart. It told me that I had a lot of work to do and that I had a lot lot to learn and maybe possibly something to offer now that I'm speaking about it with you, maybe even it gave me the idea that maybe my experience could also help someone else if their experience was helping me already at that time. Yep. And that may have been subconscious, but it motivated me. And it would take you know some time after that for me to really make a big change. It, did, it didn't happen overnight. And, and by the way, I do not know what that documentary was called. People always ask me. It's like it didn't exist, almost. I have searched high and low. I mean, I can picture the women's faces and everything, and I have an idea of what it could be, but I absolutely don't know for sure. So it was just such a God thing.
1: Wow. No matter how traumatic life is, and it's very traumatic, and there are different levels on the spectrum of trauma, all the way to death, I guess. No matter what, I, I, I spoken, I've spoken with those that have gone through really, really difficult things in life, and they always look at it from a standpoint of, you know what? There are no accidents. I am who I am because of it. And obviously, nobody would want to do it over again. But they, they, they said, for the most part, this is something that I came to this earth to experience and, and help others with. And I think um, that's the way that I look at any trauma in my life. So when did you reach rock bottom? What's the rock bottom for you?
0: Hmm. Well, first of all, I don't believe there's one rock bottom. I think there's different bottoms. There's physical bottoms, emotional bottoms. I, when I work with sponsees, I, work, I sponsor many women. We talk about this elevator going down and you can get off at any time. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't have to be when the elevator hits the ground. So everyone has maybe a different level they get off but it's the inside emotional bottom where it's kind of, I got to that point where it's like, I can't go on doing what I'm doing. I know that I can't continue to drink, but I don't know what it's going to look like on the other side. And I was terrified, but I was less, I I wanted to continue living. And I just, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to live the life that God had in store for me that I really deeply desired because there was still that hope. I never felt like I wanted to end my life. Yeah. I never have been at that point. I have experienced depression, but I really think it was because of my drinking. Um, Since getting sober, I haven't been depressed and I haven't had that kind of anxiety associated with drinking alcohol. So it was probably when I found out I was going to become an aunt, my younger sister was pregnant and I, you know, had tried a couple different things just to kind of make other people happy with my drinking, but it wasn't really, I wasn't all in. But when I found out I was going to become an aunt, it was um, November of 2005 when I found out and I checked into an intensive outpatient program, but I continued to drink for probably another six to eight months. Um, I just didn't stick. I just struggled. Like, so that was the worst point because I knew I, I needed to stop. I wanted to be a sober aunt. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to be someone my sister could trust as a, as a babysitter and all those things, but it was a struggle. It really was. But I, I finally hit my bottom like that following summer. And for me, i I really needed a rehab program because I needed to be like 24 seven involved in some activities that was completely tied to getting sober and it worked It stuck. My sobriety date is August 8th, 2006, and my, um, niece was born August 17th, 2006. Well,
1: congratulations on that. I know how difficult sober life is, especially in this society, um, I know many. I, again, fortunately, I've never had to deal with this experience in this lifetime. I had others, but uh, those that I do uh, know of uh, it's it's so tough to be sober, and congratulations for sticking with it for so long. So you took on the 12step program um, right as the mechanism to stay sober. Really quickly, what would you say about that program and for those that might at this point might be looking for for a way out, what would you recommend and what would you, Mm. what kind of advice would you give them?
0: Yeah. um, My sober life is so much better than my drinking life. So I'm actually really grateful to be an alcoholic. I really, really am. I wouldn't change any of it. And I thought that was BS when I first like quit. I was like, you gotta, it's gotta be like a death sentence. Like I'm never going to be social again. Yeah. Da, da, da. How am I going to hang out? What am I going to do? Yeah. Um, but no, I, and I have some friends who drink, like I'm not anti alcohol. Um, but I just more and more, I know people who just, you know, aren't drinking for one reason or another. And, maybe have one or two and just feel like terrible the next day, even at my age. So <laughs> I'm just glad it's not even an option for me. Um, it's really not that hard, but it, it actually adds to my life so much because I have a daily program that contributes to how I show up as a business leader. It, it contributes to all of my skills in everyday life, um, that I don't think I would have been forced to learn if I hadn't, you know, had to, to stay sober. Like it's not a luxury for me to, to learn those things. People talk about mental health these days and like self-care, like those are just, to me, it's part of my life. I've been doing that because I have to, Um, I get to, I'm glad to, but yeah, I guess You know, I just would want people to know that the 12 steps is not a cult. Like some people think you don't have to believe in God to get it. You know, there's even a chapter in the big book called We Agnostic. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you believe. It works. It really, really does. I know maybe one or two people I've ever met who have stayed sober without it. I know some people who are dry, but that's different than being sober. Yeah. Like the steps guide my everyday life and um also taught me early on what service means because there is an idea um, that I learned from that program that you can't keep what you don't give away. Mm, love that. And so when I first got sober, the whole thing was like it was about service um because if we're alone or if we are isolated or we're you know just focused on self-will then um it's only going to get us so far and it's probably going to lead us back to a drink
1: yeah it's it's interesting because so many who watched that documentary went on with their lives and nothing happened and they were just like oh great that was a nice little documentary and have a nice day you on the other hand something bloomed inside of you and you decided to Uh, travel to Rwanda. So when did you make that decision? How was it like when you arrived? Um, What did you spend your time doing? Give us a little bit of Mm -hmm. that story.
0: Yeah. So I saw that movie. I was living in the witch town, right? Salem, Massachusetts. (laughs) It's such a weird time in my life. And then um, fast forward, I moved down to Asheville, North Carolina later that decade. And at that time I was either engaged or just married to my first husband, who's my son's dad. Uh And he was a chef and he had just sold his restaurant in Vermont. I had just finished grad school in Vermont because I went back to school and got my degree in organizational leadership and learned also about the nonprofit sector. And we moved down to Asheville and within I would say, eight months or so. I brought my job with me. I loved my job. I was finally feeling, like, fired up and passionate about, like, focus, purpose, working in fair trade. And I actually, I was building out this fair trade campaign uh, in the U.S. And I started corresponding with a coffee farmer in Rwanda by email. It was called Kupak, was his cooperative, and his name was Mr. Emmanuel. And he actually responded because I found this organic certification for this coffee farm in Rwanda. So I actually found a website. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was years ago. And so it was very cool. We corresponded in French. So my French did come in handy after all. And he invited me to come visit, probably just as a courtesy, politeness. And I said, sure thing. Love <laughs> just give me a little time and <laughs> I'll be there because I've been wanting to go you know, all these years. And then not too long after that, I saw this job post come through my email, and it was for a position in Rwanda, for a couple preferably, and it just kind of laid out my background and skills, and then it also laid out my um, husband at the time, because it was a restaurant. It was called Heaven Restaurant in Kigali, Rwanda, and they needed a... full-time manager and back of house chef, culinary trainer to run the whole thing while this couple came back to the States for a year to have a baby. And it was like this turnkey, like here's two positions made for you. And by the way, we've got a house, a driver and all the things set up for you. You just have to pack your bags and get here in 30 days. (laughs) And I was like, I'm in. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So it all just, people were like, oh my gosh, that's so complicated. How do you do that? I mean, we're heading, it was almost Christmas and we had just bought a house and had a dog and it just all flowed. I mean, the people like these two guys like knocked on our door and rented the house and loved the dog and it all just worked out and flowed. And we got there on the night of President Obama's inauguration speech in January of 2009. And so we arrived that night and it was like uh, total peace just washed over me when we landed and the doors of the plane opened and I could, it, it felt like I was coming home. I felt more at home there than in the small town of Vermont I grew up in. Wow. I was totally blissed out. I was so happy like just that complete knowing you're in the right place
1: that's amazing and
0: i know i you know appearance wise like stand out and everything people ask you know why why would you feel so at home like a, a white woman with blonde yeah, hair has blue nothing eyes, to do like,
1: with with any of that it's all spirit it's all soul yeah
0: yeah and everyone was really welcoming and it um we were just taken in. we were taken in like family and I felt very safe and Rwanda is a very safe, comfortable, welcoming, beautiful place. And I I know a lot of people are surprised to hear that and it's become really important to me to let people know that because it's not um, it does have a history, you know, a very violent, tragic, sad history that many people think of when they hear Rwanda. but there's so many other
1: beautiful amazing things and reasons to go. Wow, that's amazing. That story of being in the right place at the right time, just feeling it. You know, we we get so bombarded these days with black versus white, religion, you know, versus another religion and, and it's all to separate us. And meanwhile, you know, your story is forget about the outside. I came to where I needed to be. I felt good they felt good, and it just worked, right? So, dealing with all of what you've dealt with, right? You've dealt with s- potential suicide, addiction, sense of isolation. You know, in your life—all big things, right? Your time in Rwanda was such an influence on your on your life. I could just imagine. I want to dig deeper because I know I, I've interviewed another uh, guest, Don Larson, who um, created another CPG brand. I don't know what it is with Africa and CPG brands and altruism. I aturism. need
0: to taste those cashews. <laughs> oh my
1: god! I don't know if you've listened to the episode, but he tells incredible Great. stories, and so that's that's why I actually sought you out because it just resonated. But I want to dig deeper into your learnings, right? You tell us about the community, the tribe aspect, compared to what we know of in the states, right? Hillary Clinton famously stated that it takes a village. So what might you offer in terms of insight, right, into how we can help stop the cycle of these horrible mental and emotional diseases, right, that plagues our families uh, and us in the Western world? As difficult, and the reason why I say this, because as difficult and as tragic as it is to bear for us humans, there are so many lessons to be learned, and the Rwandan people just went through everything you can possibly imagine. I mean, the whole spectrum. What did you learn from the Rwandan people who went through that tragedy in their lives? What can they teach us?
0: I learned to really focus on what's most important, which is relationships. But I also learned that there was still a lot of trauma in Rwanda when I got there. And that's why you know, I helped start the, the program. Maybe we'll talk about yep. um, in partnership with women there. But to take time, too, I was speaking about this yesterday with a couple of friends, just you get so, I think, you know, the pandemic, at least in this country, like, forced everyone to slow down. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people ended up slowing down and really looking at the essentials and prioritizing. And a lot of people made big life changes. And I think that's, that is a gift of slowing down. And time is just different there. The idea of time, the idea of goal setting, the idea of achievement, those are very differ- differently perceived by the traditional culture. It's mm-hmm. we first, yeah. not I first. It's being of service to others in the community no matter what, when someone's in need. I mean, there's a beautiful tradition of, and I'm not sure if it, ha- it still happens today because it is becoming more m- modern and developed by Western influence, but when someone's getting married or they're planning a wedding, which they go all out and it's like a three-day affair, there is an older tradition where everyone in the village would contribute towards the cost of the wedding. It was just assumed no matter what. And I love that. And so that I just, I feel so relaxed when I'm there, even though we've got businesses, we're growing, we're building things there too. We've got timelines and everything. There's lots of logistical headaches you could imagine, but, um, and things break all the time. You know, people get sick, it happens, but I just in general feel more relaxed and settled in my body. And I think it is just this constant reminder that All we have is today. All we really have is this moment, maybe not even the day. And so we better be present with what we have. Um, My experience with myself being there is very present. And so that, I would say, has been the influence of the culture there on me. But I would say every single person is having their own experience. I don't know. I mean, it depends also on someone's level of trauma, mm-hmm. because I know that can also take us out of the present moment. And there's triggers left and right. You know, it's, there's people living together again. Um, many people were let out of prison after the genocide, and they're back in everyday normal society. Yeah. Um, so that's been difficult, I know. And then there's the lasting, you know, the generational transfer of trauma with the new generation as well. Of course. Um, but I think sometimes when we get into that, it's more of like back to basics, you know, and we talk about that in recovery too. It's like, keep it simple
1: yeah.
0: um, back to basics. And during the pandemic, a lot of people were experiencing that for the first time, like yeah. just the essential living component and, I've experienced essential living in Rwanda and in recovery, especially early recovery. And it brings about so much appreciation and so much gratitude. We don't take anything for granted. And it's the most beautiful thing, you know, living there. Like there was this little market. One day I remember I discovered this cheese. Like it was this little corner market, and I'd walk home every day after work. And I just popped in, like, there's no signage, really, and just, like, popped in, and I found this cheese, and it was very hard to find cheese there, and I was so excited. I mean, I would have paid whatever. It was probably, like, ridiculously overpriced because it was imported, but it was just a moment. I mean, it, like, you know, it was just, I was so grateful for this option, for this choice, for this variety in the day. And then come back here and go into the grocery store, and it's like, oh my gosh! The funny thing is, we're creating more products for grocery more stores. More products for grocery stores. <laughs> well, you're,
1: I can I can relate. You're speaking to a foodie here, so let's yeah. let's let's continue on. So, what is the uh, the Africa Healing Exchange and the Three Mountains? And and when you talk about the Three Mountains, how did the name come about? So I thought it was an interesting name.
0: Yeah. So the Three Mountains. I was actually doing. Um, I was in Nashville, Tennessee of all places, and I was working with uh I was I met this shaman and I was working with a couple women and they were like these divine mothers and they had this ceremony and there was I have red tail hawk feather tattoo here on my arm. There were, like, hawks. And, I mean, it was just this experience beyond, you know, and I'd had the vision. I'd already started Africa Healing Exchange. That was rolling as a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, We were – I was partnering with women in Rwanda. We created a model there, which was really based on culturally appropriate um, skills development led by people there, created by people there – I was helping to fundraise um, to grow that and then really felt like the nonprofit would only take us so far. Um, It would certainly provide services for trauma healing and to build resiliency, possibly seed funding for some entrepreneurship activity in Rwanda. Um, But beyond that, I felt like it was time to really create a business that could be profitable where we could generate wealth for people. Um, And also introduce products um, that were coming out of Rwanda to showcase the beauty of the country, to shine a light on Rwanda as, you know, amazing artisans, makers, farmers, earth keepers, going beyond the genocide. And that's where the idea of Three Mountains came as the income generating vehicle. Um, And it was I saw the three mothers. It was like these three women. It was me and these two other women, the three of us in Nashville. We put our heads together, and it was like, boom, I just saw it. And the same thing happened with Africa Healing Exchange. But the mothers morphed into mountains. And to me, the mountains, going back to the beginning of our conversation, represent this very maternal, like nurturing symbol and just feeling that I get. I feel at home and safe in the mountains. And that's what we want to do is help people feel at home and safe in their bodies and in the world.
1: Wow. A little uh, fact prior to naming this whole thing, the seven hats, the first name that I came up with was um, the seven summits. So it's really interesting. Oh, that's awesome. Anyway, we're the seven hats. We're not the seven summits. I love it. So you created you created a brand, a beverage brand, a tea brand, uh, utilizing beautiful, incredible tea from Rwanda. And obviously you're helping them. And you sent me some samples. Okay. Honestly, I'm not a huge tea guy. I could take it or leave it, but I have to be honest, it's probably the best, if not one of the best that I've ever tried. And I'm a foodie and I've had a bunch of tea. That carbonated drink, the, 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 the taste, the simplicity of it, the, the essence of it, it's not simple, it's, but it is simple. And it's just, it's just gorgeous. And I told my wife, I said, Allah, we are going to be cu- <laughs> we're going to be customers here so oh, thank you for that anyone that this is not a plug a paid plug at least it is a plug but it's not a paid plug uh sarah didn't even know i was going to bring this up but i have to say if anybody likes tea and a beverage that's just going to cool them into the summer get in touch with sarah it's incredible anyway i'm going to stop there so Tell us. I
0: appreciate that, though. Thank you. That really warms my heart. I'm so glad you had a chance to try it.
1: I know from one CPG founder to another, there's Mm -hmm. nothing better than somebody giving you praise about the baby that you birthed, right? Because it Mm -hmm. is so hard. CPG, people don't understand. Only the people that, only my listeners who are CPG folks will understand how difficult CPG retail really is, okay? And when you get a little bit of praise after being punch in the face every day for the last number of years. <laughs> that just helps you move forward, right? So tell us about it's starting. True. Yeah, exactly. Right. Tell, it's
0: true. That comment could just take me through the week no absolute, matter
1: what. No question, right? <laughs> tell, so tell us about starting a CPG beverage brand. Again, I, I, we don't need the whole history, but just some of the challenges, some of the lessons that you've learned, because I know that there are some that are looking to create a brand. And you're not only a brand, you're a woman-owned brand. I mean, there's a whole bunch mm-hmm. of stuff in there. Give us a little bit of that background, that experience, and what it means to you to have a, a, a brain that actually can help contribute uh, to others.
0: Yeah, it is so much fun. It really... There's it nothing fun. like walking into a store and seeing your heart on yeah. the shelf
1: or an, end, or <laughs> an end cap. Imagine an end cap
0: is <laughs> better on an end it's cap. Better it's better in the cooler. <laughs> yes. When I see my drinks in a cooler, boy, am I happy? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. It depends on the product, but yes, it is such a journey and you're right. I mean, it's, I'm glad that I went into it a bit naive probably because, you know, that's why I think, yeah. It's important just to kind of try to figure things out as we go and bring in people as we need to. But I mean, I'm glad I didn't just go through a course or something or have people tell me right off the bat like what it would take because it's just been an incredible journey and it's been a very steep learning curve for me. I had no idea. I mean, just doing business with grocery stores is its own business, right? Of course, <laughs> and then you yes. get into other channels, e-commerce, food service, restaurants, breweries. It's all, each one is its own business unit. So I got started just because, you know, I had the tea. I was working with the tea pluckers in Rwanda and I had started importing it. I didn't know exactly what we'd be doing with it because I had other products too. I mean, I had a whole basket of Amazing products from Rwanda. I just I started meeting with a couple of local entrepreneurs and advisors, people who had really been successful to figure out what next and how to do this, and started selling the loose leaf tea um, just by the pound to cafes and bakeries to get proof of concept. And they all, everyone raved about our tea. I mean, it's it's amazing. It, it really it is. is. It
1: really is. Yes.
0: Our first um, customer for the loose leaf was Dobra and they have a number of locations and they're based in Prague, but it was the Dobra here in Asheville and they taste tea from around the world. You know, they are tea connoisseurs and they gave it the stamp of approval. And so I knew that we had something really incredible to work with. And then it took me a little time to develop the recipes for Cirilla, which is our ready to drink sparkling yes. beverage. That was really inspired by my sober journey by the fact that I was surrounded by breweries and there was nothing for me to drink there. Not that I really hang out in breweries that much, but I do, <laughs> I do like Once to go while. out. I yes. mean, I do go out to restaurants and, you know, just got sick of seeing the cranberry juice club soda option. Don't drink soda really. Um, and so I went to the craft beverage Institute here, learned how to keg, um, the director of that program is incredible, and just took me under his wing and taught me some things. And I started hauling kegs around town in the back of my car with carbonated tea inside and started slugging the kegs into breweries and um, saying a prayer every time I went in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that obsession to drink was lifted years ago. So it's very, I'm really grateful, and it's really amazing to be able to now walk into a brewery or a bar and just be there to do business, connect yeah. with the owner, the staff, and do my thing and make sure that we have cerilla either on tap or in cans wherever alcohol is served. We have four flavors. I have four new flavors just waiting in the wings to come in when the time's right. Um, but you know what that's like, just introducing... Uh line extensions, new packaging. Yeah. We just went through a rebrand. So what you're looking at is actually the old brand. um the new ones will be coming out next month.
1: Well, I'll be sure to look for them, and you know, we can have a whole show on cPG entrepreneurship and what you went through, and we might do that because I think it's fascinating. Any broker, any distributor, any retailer that's listening, if you know what's good for you, this is an incredible, incredible tea, very different than everything else that I've tasted. And I can't recommend it more highly. So I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being? And who did you need to become to manifest your current success?
0: That's really easy. I had to stop trying to be the person that I thought other people wanted me to be. Mm. And I just had to tune into the soul that I was born to be. It's really simple. It really is. I love that when we let go of all those expectations and we just show up as our core self, and let go of the worry of you know whether we're gonna uh, you know other people are gonna approve of us or not. The funny thing is when we do that too, people love us even more.
1: Uh, isn't that true?
0: And we really start to attract the people, the places, and things that will help us get to that next level of making a difference in the world. Wow. It starts to actually feel easy. It doesn't have to be a push.
1: Yeah, so many people can relate, right? How many of us try to be someone we're not just to please others instead of pleasing ourselves, right? That's why hat number one is so important, self-love. Sarah, where could the seven hatters find you?
0: The best place to find me right now is drinkcerilla.com and we're going to have a lot of ways to interact on that site coming soon. We've got some QR codes. We're making new videos, and um, we're building out a TikTok channel, which is Cirilla Official. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well, Sarah Delaney, and Instagram as well. We have Drink Cirilla and Sarah Delaney. So those are the best places, and I'm, I'm pretty responsive. I'm usually the one to check, and I have an intern who's also amazing.
1: That's awesome. And are you national? Are you uh, regional at this point?
0: I'm at this point, we're North Atlantic, Southeast, including Florida, and um, national through Amazon. And we have some accounts in California as well. Got it. So, yeah.
1: Sarah, it was such a pleasure having you on the show. I so enjoyed our conversation. It means a lot to me and the seven hatters for you to be so vulnerable. And I'm sure that it helped some of those that are listening, some, some listening, um, go through some trauma of their, in, in their life and maybe take that next step uh, to whatever, w- whether it's recovery or um, a new opportunity. And I think that's why we exist, right? We have our experience to help others have better experiences. Sarah, thank you for joining me on The Seven Hats.
0: I just want to add one quick thing. If there's any women you know, who are you know, looking to get sober and just not sure how, feel free to send me a message on any of those places and I can go to a virtual meeting with you or give you a schedule or something. I'm definitely happy to do that. And thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Uh, well, thank you so much for that offer. And I'm sure that those in need will come and take that offer. Appreciate you. Thank you.
0: Appreciate you. Thank you for what you do.
1: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And here's my takeaway. Traumatic experiences shape us as a species. After any trauma, be it from combat, sexual assault, abuse, or loss related to those that we love or our business, the brain and the body change. Every cell will record the memories and embed them into our conscious and subconscious mind. Survivors are unique, and their healing will be individual to them. As Sarah said, there is no one-size-fits-all regarding how you should feel or how long it should take to recover. And the bottom is also unique to the individual. Sarah speaks to the elevator going down, and each of us will get off when we are ready. Not everyone needs to ride the elevator all the way down. But the true mark of success is getting help and working through the trauma as best as possible to come out the other side. That's what Sarah did. And through the support of therapy in the 12-step program, she created the life of her dreams. Was it easy? No. Is it easy? No. But we put one foot in front of the other and just get through to the next step. Eventually, we'll come out the other side. And those experiences will shape how we show up for others in need. For Sarah, her traumatic experience helped her empathize and understand the generational trauma felt by the Rwandan people. And that pain transitioned towards power. You know, they say that your mess becomes your message. And I agree. I want to thank Sarah once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from her wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can all attract even more high-quality people into our 7Hats community. So for now, I bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selik, and I tip my hat to you.